I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. David Yaden. He studies the measurement and experimental manipulation of mental states called altered states of consciousness. His research is currently focused on the therapeutic potential of psychedelic substances for mood and substance use disorders. He has studied with Roland Griffiths, neuroscientist Andrew Newberg, and psychologist Martin Seligman. He has authored over 40 scientific and scholarly publications and edited two books that provide a scientific perspective on practices and experiences traditionally associated with religion and spirituality. They're called Rituals and Practices in World Religions and Being Called. His research has been covered by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Scientific American, CNN, BBC, and NPR. He recently co-authored The Varieties of Spiritual Experience with Andrew Newberg. David, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm really curious, how did you get interested in the topic of spiritual experiences and eventually psychedelics? Uh, right. So there's a saying, research is me-search. And I think in the realm of psychological research, that's even more true. People often say what you study in psychology is something that you have none of or a lot of. So in my case, my interest in these intense inner experiences called spiritual or mystical experiences started with my own. So I had one of these experiences entirely spontaneously. So there was no psychedelic substance involved, no meditation retreat, nothing really that I can point to that made me deserving, so to speak, of this experience. I was lying on my dorm room bed and what started with a feeling of mild heat in my chest, which felt initially like indigestion, heartburn, eventually spread over my entire body. And at some point, a voice in my mind uh, said, this is love, at which point I became unaware of my body or my surroundings, and went into an entirely mental space where I felt as though I could see 360 degree boundless horizon all in, in every direction and a kind of intricate fabric stretching out that I felt indistinguishable from. And this feeling of heat, which I now felt to be love, reached the boiling point. So it, it, it felt as if I could experience no more of it. And after what was probably just a few minutes, but felt like days, I opened my eyes, my body was laughing and crying at the same time. Colors seemed more vivid, everything felt new, became uh, overflowing with feelings of love for friends and family and, and called many of them up to, to tell them that. And really felt rejuvenated in in a number of ways about myself and my future. But most of all, I had this question, which was, what the fuck just happened to me? I mean, I had no reference point for that kind of experience. And it, it made me a little nervous because you know, these thoughts can occur. You know, am, am I going crazy, so to speak? Uh, what What was that? And so that kicked off a decades-long reading splurge, first in comparative religion, then philosophy, then neuroscience, 
leading to psychology and now I guess psychopharmacology. So, and I'm really still uh, trying to answer that question. Did you grow up religious? Did religion kind of play any part in this experience? I grew up going to church regularly, but I became an atheist at a fairly young age. And at the time of the experience, I would have considered myself an atheist. And so it was all the more surprising. I initially interpreted the experience along religious lines because that was the closest cultural touchstone I had to to interpreting the experience. And that's why I initially was reading into comparative religion. I think eventually moving into philosophy really provided a huge amount of intellectual humility and said, well, I, I can't really know what conclusions I can draw about the nature of reality from this mental state that I experienced. And so I became an agnostic, which I suppose I consider myself now. I think that religious traditions do provide uh, some very helpful frameworks for understanding these kinds of experiences and, and navigating them, and yet also pose challenges to our, our current scientific efforts to understand these experiences. So it gets quite complicated. I'm sure. Maybe we can take a step back and you know, you discuss this in your book a bit, which I, I really love the book and I recommend everyone read it. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. How do you define a spiritual experience and how does it relate to differ from, you know, religion or religious experience? Yeah, this is more difficult than it may seem. We do offer a definition, which is a intensely altered state of consciousness which we say is a gestalt shift in affect, cognition, and perception, which also involves a seeming perception of an unseen reality of some kind. So it's more or less two-part definition. One is substantially altered state. The other is seeming perception of an unseen reality. So taking them one at a time, this, the intensely altered state, this, this means that you're, you're feeling quite a bit different from your ordinary waking awareness. Uh, some people refer to this as non-ordinary states of, of consciousness. For example, they leave a lot to be desired, uh, these, these terms, because it, you're defining something in terms of what you ordinarily feel. But, but nonetheless, uh, most people seem to understand what that means, a substantial shift in, in one's uh, state of consciousness. And so the upshot of that part of the definition is we're not just talking about beliefs here. So some people say, well, I, I, I believe in God very deeply or, or believe in nirvana or, or some other concept, but that, that's not enough. It has to be a discrete, intensely altered mental state. And then the second part involving a seeming perception of an unseen reality, this means that it's not just any old altered state. It's not, not just an intense fever, for example, that we're talking about. These are mental states that seem to involve coming into contact with something profound and, and meaningful. And that's the, the unseen order 
of, of some kind, something that we're not privy to in our normal perceptions of the world. Now, this unseen order can be any number of things. For some people, it's something supernatural like God or an underlying unity, despite appearances of differences, or even maybe something more scientific like entropy, for some people have, have mentioned. Now, we use the word seeming because it's possible that you can have a perception of something like an underlying unity in all things, but then interpret it differently later. You, you could you could have someone, and, and in fact, this is rather common, atheists who have an experience of God, and then and they fully feel the love of God and have this perception of God. But then later on, you know, say a, a day or so, weeks later, they say, well, actually, I'm going to interpret that differently. I'm going to interpret that as merely a brain event and basically an illusion. And yet what's interesting is in many cases, even when atheists like Bertrand Russell, for example, have these experiences that they interpret differently later, they often still benefit from them. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this issue of benefits. But yeah, that's, that's a long way around of trying to define what we're talking about here. At least that's how we do it in our, in our book. Yeah, and, and maybe we can get into why these spiritual experiences matter. What, why are they important to us as human beings? I think the first thing is just that so many people who have these experiences say they matter so much. That's what's so curious about these experiences to begin with. They're, they're brief moments, and yet people attach such substantial significance to them. They're often turning points or inflection points in the story of one's life. And so there, there does seem to be just this meaning that people themselves attach uh, to these experiences. In terms of various belief systems, sometimes they're offered as evidence for this or that belief system. I think, though, for me as a psychological researcher, I'm interested in these experiences because they're so brief and yet seem to have the potential for long-lasting positive benefits. There aren't many things like that. You know, we think about the opposite, which is trauma. Very brief moments can have long-lasting negative effects. But the list of very brief experiences that have long-lasting positive effects is a pretty short one. And in this case, even more interesting in that in these experiences happen almost entirely behind the eyes, so to speak. There, there's often nothing going on in one's external surroundings and even nothing behavioral to indicate that someone is having one of these experiences all happening internally. So the fact that such a brief inner experience can have such long-lasting and profound effects, trying to understand that and, and potentially eventually harness some of those processes is very interesting to me as a psychological researcher, to say the least. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned some positive effects on your own life, you know, changing in some ways your intellectual interests. And what what are some of the effects that have been studied in, in the literature on, on people who have had these experiences? Yeah. So people who have these experiences, I, I think, tend to shift. One way of thinking about these shifts is in terms of the cognitive triad. So Aaron Beck, the founder of one of the founders of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, talked about the cognitive triad, which is core beliefs about oneself, 
one's future and the world. These shifts, speaking personally, were profound and positive for me. So I felt much better about who I am and my prospects in the world and also the world itself, world as a whole and, un and all of the other people in it. it. There was just this shift in tone from this quite negatively shaded view to a, a much more positively shaded view of the world. So I think the shift in worldview, we might say, is a deep one and an, and an important one. I think also people tend to report feeling isolated and alone. And of course, you can feel alone in a crowd. You know, you can, you can feel isolated even when you're surrounded by other people. But people go from feeling alienated to deeply connected. And that connectedness can involve connection to other people, the environment, nature, and even supernatural concepts for many, like feeling more connected to God or, or some supernatural or broader dimension of reality. So the sh these shifts towards more positive worldview and deeper feelings of connectedness, I think, are the main themes that we often see. Got it. And can you um, maybe talk a bit about the Good Friday experiment? You described that experiment in the book a couple of times and, and its significance for this field. Sure. Yeah. So I should say these experiences can be triggered by any number of things. So we've, we've seen that they can be triggered during transitional periods of life, practices like prayer or meditation, solitude in nature, even grief. And so it's interesting that one of these triggers is psychedelic substances. And it's one of the more reliable, probably the most reliable, and probably by a fair margin. I mean, you can meditate for months, years, even decades, and not have one of these dramatic spiritual type experiences. But if you uh, take psychedelics under safe and supportive settings, your odds of having one of these experiences quite high. And so the study you're referring to was one of the first to test this. It was done in at Marsh Chapel, which is Boston University, where the basement of the chapel, which I've now been to, <laughs> And it, it is very basement-like, was, was the setting of a research study where seminary students were given either psilocybin, which is a psychedelic substance, it's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and the other half were given niacin, which is basically inert, non-psychoactive substance that just causes some facial flushing. And they were administered these substances during a Good Friday service that they were able to listen in on uh, from, from this basement. And the findings of the study were pretty striking in that most of the participants who were given psilocybin had very dramatic, intense, meaningful, spiritual or mystical type experiences. When I say mystical type experience, that's a 
a kind of a spiritual experience that features unity as its as its main component. And many of those individuals who had these experiences benefited from them and reported benefiting from them for weeks or months. And, and by some accounts, there was a long-term follow-up many years. And so what this study showed was that psilocybin appears to be able to induce experiences of substantial meaning and even spiritual significance with persisting positive effects. And those persistent positive effects that they saw over the long term was this, you know, you were talking a little bit about disposition and, you know, the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy that might be similar to something like this. Is that what they saw in the experiment as well? Well, that study had a number of limitations, so I'm not sure about how much to look into the persisting effects that they found there. I think it was much broader coarse-grained sorts of measures and interviews. But, and we'll probably get to this, but it's worth mentioning there was a replication of sorts and really a, a imp substantial improvement of this study that was done by Roland Griffiths here at Johns Hopkins that improved on the design substantially. So a couple of the issues with the Good Friday experiment is there was uh, no active control and the substances were administered in a group setting. And so individuals became unmasked to their experimental condition very quickly. So both of those were corrected in Roland Griffith's study. In that study, methylphenidate or Ritalin was the active control. And so this is a psychoactive substance that results in feeling uh, substantially altered and feeling some of the energetic activating aspects that are similar to psilocybin at least. And the substances were administered in individual sessions. So there wasn't this group confound. In addition to that, there were better measures that were administered at various follow-up points following the study. And so the researchers just could more precisely measure the positive impact and adverse impacts of, of the experience. And so in this study, it was found that among those who were administered psilocybin, most had a mystical type experience and most benefited in their well-being for many months after the experience there were follow-up points at six and 18 months after. And so those individuals who received psilocybin had more increased positive mood than the control group, better relationships with loved ones, more pro-social attitudes resulting in helping behavior, more positive attitudes about oneself and the world, getting back to that cognitive triad aspect. And these self-report findings were also supported by community observer ratings. So this is friend or neighbor, coworker who is blind to condition, who is able to weigh in on, on the individual and whether they seem to change uh, for the better. I want to zoom out maybe just for one question before we get back to the topic of psychedelics. Because, you know, one of the statistics that you point to in the book 
that about 25 to 39 percent of patients with schizophrenia exhibit some kind of spiritual or religious content in their delusions. And, you know, I wonder about how we sort of differentiate between spiritual experiences and, you know, a psychotic break or even mental illness. And sometimes those boundaries are quite clear. I mean, going to mass and having a spiritual experience is very different from, you know, screaming at the top of your lungs in the middle of Baltimore at 3 a.m., you know. So what happens when these areas become gray? You you cover some of this in the book. It's really interesting. How how do you sort of think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And and it's also important to attend to the risks and adverse effects. So just to close the loop on that, my description of the previous study, there were some individuals, a few who had experiences under psilocybin that were dominated by anxiety and fear. And at least some of of those individuals indicated that they would not want to have the experience again. They didn't have adverse persisting effects, but they had challenging experiences that didn't seem uh, rewarding. So that, that, that can and does occur. And so I, throughout this, I want to emphasize that there are risks and adverse events are, are, are possible. And, and this is under safe and supportive clinical uh, settings. So in recreational settings, the, the, those risks uh, would increase. Okay, so getting back to how do you differentiate between these experiences that can be quite positive and others that seem related to or are even constituent of mental disorders? It's a tough question. It gets into some deep philosophical waters related to the question of what is a mental illness anyway. And these sorts of questions, I often go back to William James as a guide who was a a physician, founder of empirical psychology in the U.S., and a philosopher. And his philosophy that he's best known for is pragmatism, which is the idea of looking to the consequences to judge something's value or, or even truth in some cases. So William James was close friends with Adolf Meyer, who is known as the founder of scientific psychiatry. And so they would trade, grad students would go back and forth between them. And and Adolf Meyer drew on William James's notion of pragmatism when really defining mental disorder. So something like a mental disorder is defined as substantial suffering for oneself and others and role dysfunction. And so in, in order to determine whether someone is suffering from a mental disorder, those, those pieces have to be in place, at least one of them. So this is a really useful guide when we think about something like a spiritual experience. So someone could have an experience that may sound uh, to some of us as quite strange. It could involve the feeling, well, feeling at one with all things. Maybe that doesn't seem as strange, but feeling connected to an angel or, or feeling as though, you know, one is indistinguishable from the rest of existence. I mean, these kinds of things that you think, oh, that's not quite what 
t- normal topic of dinner table <laughs> conversation. And so you think, well, maybe that's maybe that's a delusion. Maybe maybe there are some problems here, and that's certainly worth considering and, and looking into. But ultimately, the arbiter comes down to suffering for oneself or others, and and role dysfunction. And if if those if there if there's not suffering for oneself or others, or and there's no role dysfunction, then I think we have to say, well, this probably isn't a mental illness. And then further complicating it, many or in fact most of these experiences result in positive effects. And so that becomes quite confusing. How 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 do we categorize these unusual experiences that that are that that are often positive? The emphasis goes the other way as well as, you know, sometimes people are having experiences that they themselves believe to be quite positive and yet are resulting in substantial distress, other people and, and the impossibility of one fulfilling their, their life role. And then, and then despite someone maybe self-defining their experience as a, as a meaningful spiritual experience, then we do have to look into the relationship with with mental illness. So all of that's to say is the consequences, I think, are what matter most and ultimately what we have available to us to judge the value of these experiences in any given case. You tied the, you know, this element of spiritual experience to to psychedelics when we talked about kind of the Good Friday experiment. Maybe we can talk a bit about what psychedelics are exactly. Right? How would you describe them for our listeners? And then maybe we can get into how maybe biologically they might cause spiritual experience or induce spiritual experiences and whether that's something that we don't quite know. But maybe we can start with what are psychedelics exactly? Psychedelics are sometimes, that that term is sometimes used in this very broad umbrella way, which fits better actually with what I would call hallucinogens. So sometimes people want to say MDMA ketamine, psilocybin, and LSD, all of these are psychedelics. And and some people use the term in that way, especially in the media, I think. But here at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins, we don't use the term in that way. And I think the, the field is changing the way we use the term. So we would tend to think about a substance like MDMA as an empathogen, and we might think about ketamine as a dissociative anesthetic. And we would only use the term psychedelic to cover substances like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and mescaline. And so going forward, when I use the word psychedelic, that's the subset that I'll be referring to. Sometimes people call these classic psychedelics or serotonergic psychedelics. And they call them that because they seem to involve substantially agonism of the 5-HT2A receptor, which is part of the serotonin system. And so, yeah, I'll, and I'll even more specifically, I'll generally be talking about psilocybin because that's what our lab studies most and, and most of the field is interested in studying psilocybin at the moment. Got it. Um, so how would you, uh, how would you, what's the theory behind these induced spiritual experiences from these drugs how does it sort of like happen okay so the short answer is we don't know 
<laughs> like many things in psychology and psychiatry, there are huge gaps in our in our knowledge, unfortunately, in terms of underlying mechanism. We do seem to have a few leads, so I can walk you through some of those. So when we look at accounts of certain kinds of spiritual experience, specifically those mystical type experiences featuring unity, when we compare those spontaneously triggered experiences to psychedelically induced experiences, they seem to be very similar in many cases. And so it, it seems like psychedelics provide a, a useful model of at least some kinds of what we call spiritual experience, especially this mystical type or the ones featuring deep unity or connectedness. And so that allows us to extrapolate and to say, well, it seems like 5-HT2A agonism, if that's what's featured so strongly in psychedelic experiences, it stands to reason that potentially that could be also happening in these spontaneous or meditation-induced type experiences. And in studies where the 5-HD2A activity is blocked using catanserin or some other 5-HD2A agonist, most of the characteristic acute subjective effects of psychedelics, basically the trip, disappears. So that that's not part. And psychedelics do also have a number of other effects besides 5-HD2A, but 5-HD2A seems to be responsible for the subjective effects and then therefore the mystical type aspect. So there's a lead. It seems like 5-HT2A is related. Skipping from psychopharmacology to neuroimaging, so moving from Roland Griffiths, my past advisor here at Hopkins, to my that past advisor at Penn, Andy Newberg, who is a radiologist and does a lot of neuroimaging studies, he put meditators and contemplatives like nuns and neuroimaging scanners and found that when these individuals reported feeling deep senses of unity and connectedness, a particular region of the brain uh, was inhibited, that basically the temporal parietal junction, to speak in really broad terms, and in other studies, when that region was lesioned, individuals would report more of these kinds of experiences afterwards, after the lesion occurred. And to be more specific, things like the angular gyrus, so because temporal parietal junction is very broad, so we're getting a little bit more specific here. And there's ongoing studies trying to uh, use non-invasive forms of brain stimulation to try to induce these kinds of experiences by inhibiting that region. So that that seems like a, a useful lead that's been replicated across a few different paradigms. Now moving into psychology, it seems as though circumstances in which individuals are either stressed or brought to kind of unusual perceptual states 
like when someone's sleep deprived, for example, or has meditated for a very long period of time, there appears to be more incidents of these kinds of experiences. So, so I've just walked you through a few levels of analysis. Unfortunately, there needs to be a lot more work done on this topic because there are huge gaps there. I, you know, part of the sort of what seems to be like this massive influx of interest in psychedelics has to do with the kind of therapeutic possibilities for mental illness um, or even end of life care, as you've kind of written about. Can you describe some of the positive results you've seen in using psychedelics for certain mental illnesses? Yes. So, this 2006 Roland Griffith study, kind of somewhat replicating the Good Friday experiment, showed increases in well being. There's a couple of other studies following that that basically replicated and extended those findings. And because we're housed in a medical school, the next obvious step was to say, well, can this benefit people who are suffering from a mental illness? There's been little to no innovation in the drug development pipeline for decades. And so this was looked at as a potential way forward. And indeed, the early studies at least have shown some important signal from administering psilocybin under safe and supportive settings uh, for mood and substance use disorders. Uh, so there was a several, there's now been a number of depression studies which have shown positive benefit and alcohol use disorder and tobacco use disorder studies all showing positive benefits. Actually, some of these benefits are dramatic and pretty huge effect sizes, but it's common early on investigating an intervention that the effect sizes are quite large because the control groups are not as strong and the, the sample sizes are, are lower and the blinding is less intensive. And so we'll expect, and we've already seen those, those effect sizes coming down. But last year, there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing SSRI to psilocybin. And actually, the, the primary outcome measure missed. So there was, so there was no difference. But all of the other measures favored psilocybin. And it seemed as though psilocybin had a better side effect profile. And so depending on your expectations, that's either a letdown. If you thought that psychedelics were going to be this huge revolution that was going to change everything and cure mental disorders, which some people did and actually still do, then you would think that's a letdown. But it, if you didn't expect much from psilocybin and you assumed that if you compared it to the current gold standard pharmacotherapy for depression, that it would perform less well, then this would also be a surprise to, to say that it performed at least equally well and by some accounts was superior. Yeah, I drilled down into that particular study because I think it provides a more balanced picture of where we are and what we can 
come to expect in terms of the therapeutic potential for psilocybin and mood and substance use disorders, it seems to me that there's reason for cautious optimism that there are real risks and adverse events do occur. We need to keep reiterating that as with all treatments. But the current state of the evidence seems to suggest that this is a treatment that could be viable for at least some and, and potentially many, and seems as though it could come to be another tool in the, the tool belt of clinicians working to manage and treat mental illness. Yeah. And I, I like also to tie this back to the spiritual experience element of this, and I'm going to be barking up the Y tree again, but what is the theory behind it helping with mental illness? Is it because people have these spiritual experiences that they suddenly feel more uplifted and less depressed? Is it something in the pharmacology of the drug itself? Maybe here too, we're sort of operating in this area of ignorance a bit. What, what's your theory behind this? So I think the answer is yes to all of those things <laughs> in the sense that it appears that the spiritual type experience aspect, that is the subjective effects of psychedelics, appear to play some role in their potential as, as a treatment. But there are other processes as well that seem to also be relevant. And so it's not an either or kind of proposition. It, it seems as though what researchers are finding that psychedelics result in neurogenesis in neuroplasticity and things like BDNF and have an anti-inflammatory aspect, all of which are processes that have been associated with other treatments that have been beneficial. And it seems likely that those processes here are, are playing a positive role when they do. What's unusual with psychedelics is they have these characteristic acute subjective effects or the so-called trip. And when we measure people's acute experiences using a scale that, that measures, well, we have one called the mystical experience questionnaire, uh, or we have an awe scale, for example, uh, which are, seem to be measuring similar things, these deep feelings of connectedness. When we administer those measures during or right after participants' experiences, scores on those measures will predict treatment outcomes weeks or months later to at least some extent. And so it seems to be that the quality of the experience itself plays some role in the treatment. We're still trying to quantify the extent to which the acute subjective effects matter and which subjective effects. For example, is it feelings of connectedness or is it feelings having a, a certain insight about your life or, or relationships or is it more capacity for psychological flexibility or acceptance? So we're still looking at which of these matter most. We're also still trying to determine whether you could take away the acute subjective effects entirely and still get benefit. So some researchers are trying to do this. They're trying to 
tweak the psychedelic molecules such that you get the effects of neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and anti-inflammatory processes, but you don't get the acute subjective effects. Actually, there's hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into this uh, right now. I think that's really interesting scientifically and, and potentially clinically. Some people are contraindicated from having psychedelic experiences. Uh, for example, if you have a personal or family history of psychotic disorder, maybe these new the tr drugs could uh, allow those individuals to benefit from other aspects of this treatment. And then scientifically, it would just be fascinating <laughs> to see if you could take away the acute subjective effects and still get persisting benefits. Personally, I find that quite implausible. I think uh, for a drug that is has six hours of psychoactive activity and, and is fully removed from one's body in a day or so to have effects a year later, ju that just seems implausible to me. It seems as though you need to have shifts in one's narrative and meaning making and cognition in order for, for those effects to persist for, for that long. But that's, that's an ongoing debate in the field. Yeah, a couple of years ago, you um, published a review article on on psychedelics and, and end of life and palliative care, and in particular, you focused on psilocybin. It produced, as you kind of said here, what you describe as this kind of mystical type experience and psychological insight. What do you see as being the role of psychedelics in end of life or palliative care? You know, it's different from depression, where you're looking kind of at the long term effects. Here, we're kind of thinking of the short term about, you know, a good death or kind of living the last months of life in a very meaningful way. How do you think about the role of psychedelics in this instance? Yeah, psychedelics in an end of life context, because of all the emphasis we put on set and setting, you know, your expectations coming into the experience and a, a safe and comfortable surroundings, you wouldn't necessarily immediately think that psychedelics in an end-of-life context would be a good match. You might think, well, that would be a horrifying and scary time to have a psychedelic experience. Why not, you know, have it during really happy periods of, of life? So you might think that, but the evidence seems to show that the end-of-life context is a particularly useful one to, to use psychedelics within. I think part of the issue is that there are so few uh, tools in that end-of-life context that can foster positive emotions and the capacity for, for meaning and connection. There are very useful pharmacotherapies, pain management, of course, and and for treating various mental disorders that may arise as a result of the, the stress and difficulty of, of this time. But in terms of an intervention that, that fosters the capacity for connection and meaning, there are relatively few, if, if any, options. Or really, just there are forms of psychotherapy that are used in this context. And so when you, when you think about it in that way, you know, providing this new tool and this very difficult but poignant time, it, it starts to make more sense. And there have been studies on this, and the studies show 
that most people benefit substantially. Who, so these are people who have a life-threatening diagnosis, who are essentially terminal, who undergo a psilocybin experience. And what they report is that they're able to view their impending deaths as a natural part of a larger process and end up feeling much more gratitude for every moment that they still have and and the moments that they have had in the past and are able to connect on a, a deeper way, a deeper level to to loved ones. And so when you read these accounts and you look at these data, you begin to think, well, actually, this is this is a, a quite promising intervention, uh, especially in our society that maybe doesn't facilitate an end-of-life process that, that most of us would want to participate in. I think most of us want, when we think about our own impending death or eventual death, we, these are the kinds of things that we want to experience, feelings of poignancy and gratitude and connection. And it, and it seems as though psychedelics, uh, for many, can facilitate the, these kinds of outcomes. Again, I'm going to keep pointing to risks and adverse events. Not everyone benefits in this way. Some people feel uh, acute fear and anxiety and don't experience positive benefits. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind, too. This is by no means a panacea. You know, I confess that when I first got wind of this this idea of using psychedelics for for medical treatment, I was skeptical, I guess. Part of it, I think, is that psychedelics have this reputation as being like this drug, you know, recreational drug rather than a kind of medical drug. And even that dichotomy is probably mistaken in some way. But as I've sort of read through, you know, your articles, Roland Griffith's articles, and kind of become more enamored with the idea and interested in the idea, I have noticed that popular culture has become in some ways obsessed with it and has kind of, I don't know, it seemed to exaggerate the current findings. And you've mentioned this and tried to be, and you've been very nuanced in our discussion, but I, and forgive me if I'm sort of like going off on a tangent a bit here, but I you know, I, this might be an imperfect analogy, but I think about the kind of movement to medicalize marijuana, right? And I remember as a neurology resident, patients would come in to clinic and say, I, you know, I want CBD or I want a prescription for marijuana because I have seizures and they're going to help me with my seizures or I have anxiety and this can help me with my anxiety. And it was incredible how often this happened and how much of a push there was from, I think, people who saw news stories about this stuff and maybe overinterpreted it or the news stories themselves kind of overinterpreted the evidence. But, you know, marijuana has its benefits. It also has its risks. And, you know, the average kind of daily use of this has increased significantly. It's more potent than it's ever been. So, you know, we always have to interpret, as scientists, we always have to interpret these things with caution. And I really appreciated a JAMA uh, psychiatry viewpoint piece that you authored, where you said, like, we need to sort of deflate 
the bubble a bit of the, the hype surrounding this. You know, as a, as a scientist who is actively engaged in something that seems to have this massive light shown on it on a regular basis, how do you kind of, I don't know, maintain the, maintain the scientific approach or outlook on something like this? In the, you know, it's, it, it seems like it's easy to get caught up in, in the hype. It is. Yeah, so it's our society doesn't do particularly well with nuance, right? <laughs> we there's a lot of black or white thinking, and we saw that with psychedelics over the years. There were decades of demonization, essentially, that and and scaremongering mixed up with drug war propaganda that was totally out of line with the evidence. You know, that it was not only an illegal and dangerous drug, but the worst drug. And it would, you know, make you, quote unquote, go crazy. Right. We, some of us will remember dare classes and, and things like that. It, it, and it was, these compounds were painted in the scariest possible ways, really. What's astounding is how quickly that has reversed and the pendulum has gone in the entirely opposite direction. So there were, you know, Roland Griffiths and others published a number of these findings and the, the media really took them up. I think because, you know, I mentioned before the, the lack of innovation for so long and the fact that so many people are suffering uh, from, from mental illness and, and even just languishing. So this seemed like a psychedelics, I think, seemed like a great hope because of these positive findings. And and like I said, there's there's reason for qualified optimism. I think, you know, there there really is. And yet things, especially as industry got involved and a lot of people are investing and pinning a lot of financial hopes on psychedelics being this complete revolution in psychiatry the the you can track over time the headlines and the statements made publicly about psychedelics being a, a wonder drug or or quote unquote curing mental disorder for which we have no evidence or solving major world social problems like the climate crisis just ramping up the claims such that now We've gone in the entirely other direction where there's way too much positive hype. And this can do real damage. So when patients speak with their physicians, sometimes they they hold out a tremendous amount of hope for really a, a kind of wonder drug panacea because this is what they've been reading about in the news. The reality is we haven't, this is not approved, and this is not FDA approved medication. We're still doing studies. We're still trying to quantify the risk benefit ratio. And there are risks and there are adverse events that do occur. And so what I try to do is to provide a kind of qualified optimism that mentions the risks and tries to present a, a kind of proportionality about what kinds of benefits to expect. So I told the story of the New England Journal article comparing current gold standard of depression with 
psilocybin and showing that they're actually shown technically to be equivalent. And then secondary analyses and side effects favored psilocybin a little bit. So, so that puts things in perspective, I think, where we think, okay, so, so it looks like it's maybe outperforming our current gold standard by a very little bit or, or, or maybe equivalent to our current gold standard. I think that's where, where we should be thinking in terms of the treatment potential is that it will be as good as or maybe a little better than current gold standard treatments. And so I don't know that this is going to be a revolution, but it seems like it will be an improvement in a domain where we desperately need improvements. So even if it's a little improvement, those are real people's lives and, and suffering people who could benefit. And so I, I find meaning in that. And, and like I said, a qualified optimism. Absolutely. Can you talk to us a bit about what research you're doing now or what you have kind of ongoing? Sure. So I'm leading a, a clinical trial in psilocybin and obsessive compulsive disorder. And looking at exploring psilocybin in chronic low back pain, uh, which is one of the largest sources of disability in the world. But increasingly, I'm moving back towards the kinds of topics that I wrote about in my book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, trying to focus on how these psychedelic experiences are related to spiritual experiences that have been triggered through other means, if they are similar, if so, how and when, what are the shared underlying mechanisms, and then why do these experiences result in boost to well-being, and how is it that those boosts can sometimes be so long-lasting? So these are the kinds of questions that really I want to devote the rest of my career to, and that possibility has recently become actualized through an amazing initiative that Roland Griffiths has undertaken. This is called the griffithsfund.org is the website. You can, you can check this out. But Roland Griffiths, who I've mentioned several times in, because of his pioneering work in this, this area, received a terminal cancer diagnosis. And in, with his remaining time, he's devoted himself to creating a, a fund and a professorship that will support research in psychedelics as they relate to spirituality, spiritual experience, and well-being, which will exist in perpetuity. That's the intention. So, so this is essentially a, a new of institution at Johns Hopkins devoted to studying psychedelics, spiritual experience, and well-being. And I'm honored and humbled to have been named the first uh, recipient of this professorship. So really, the rest of my life will be devoted to trying to understand these experiences and to make scientific progress in explaining them and trying to understand their risks and their benefits and when and when they make sense to apply and to benefit people's lives. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank um, you. And on that note, David, thank you for taking the time today. This was awesome. It's really cool. Thanks so much. 
This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.